All right, he is here. The man, the myth, the legend, Adam Grant. I'm wasting zero time because I'm not going to lie. I've been listening to your audio book, uh, the new one that just came out, Think Again. I have it behind me. I've been skimming through. I'm reading another book, and you get mentioned in that, and I'll bring that up shortly. I forgot the original reason that I reached out to you was because I was featured in your podcast, Work Life, with Sean McVay. And so it's been a long time coming. It's good to finally talk to you. It's great to hear your voice live as opposed to just on tape marveling at Sean's memory. Uh, that was it was such cool audio. I was like, we have to use this. Oh, can you remind me? And this is ignorance on my part. What was again the theme of that work life podcast? What was oh, we we did an episode on how to remember anything, and I love that you forgot. No, oh damn. <laughs> that was on purpose. That's called good hosting and bringing it together. You set me up perfectly for that one. I've been I've been dreaming about this moment for months. No, I I think that uh, we all want to have a memory like Sean's, and I was curious about how you could build one and if mm. you could build one. Mm. Uh, I love the way that you work. I love the way that you think. Uh, the I, I'm I'm listening to your book while I'm doing dishes and just, I, I love the way that you host things. And I was worried that I actually, I was like, man, I don't know if I should have gotten think again to actually read, but I love the way that you do uh, imitations of people and the part in your book where you reveal who the child is in the debate. It was actually so impactful as an audiobook that I, I just want to say that you, I, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Just as someone that enjoys learning and reading, I just wanted you to know that you have done a good job of also entertaining. And I wanted you to know that. Oh, thank you. You made my day. I have never recorded my own audiobook before. Uh, I, when, I, when I first started writing, I thought, well, why, why do I want to sit in a room and read my own words out loud? And of course, now that I host podcasts and have been on, on a number of shows, I'm like, wait, of course you want to hear the actual author talk. What was mm. I thinking? So it, this has actually been some rethinking for me. And I'm, I'm glad that you didn't hate it so much that you uninvited me from Bleacher Report. It would have been tough. We, uh, we had a short hook. Uh, just for people that don't know, let me give a full intro. Adam Grant, you're an organizational psychologist. You are, according to your book, and I'm sure many sources, the top rated professor at Wharton. And then I'm reading another book, and I learned that you're the youngest tenured professor at Wharton. And that book is this, Deep Work by Cal Newhart, Newport, excuse me. And I, I read about your process. And so is this a part of the year for you right now where you are in research mode, you're in work mode, are you in media mode? Because I know that your podcast is back. What part of the schedule are we in right now? Yeah, I think I think I'm in book launch mode or book tour mode still. Although it's a mm. weird book tour to do it entirely from my house, but it, totally convenient. Uh, yeah, I think basically I took all of February and a good chunk of March to to try to get these ideas out in the world and then do season four of work life. So I haven't been in a classroom since last year. I I wanted to dive in when you're able to put up the out of office email and you let people know that you're in super work mode. So to do Think Again, I'm sure that you sat at with, with ideas and concepts for long periods of time and did deep work on it. How satisfying was it? And, and what was that experience like for you? I think I do my best thinking when I'm writing. And that means usually that I need a, a solid, not just you know two or three hour block of time one day, but a solid month or two where I'm actively working through ideas as I'm writing. 
And I, I think I went into it assuming that it was going to be a pretty solitary experience. It's not because I have this whole challenge network of friends and colleagues and former students. And of course, my wife, Allison, who will read drafts and just tear them apart. Mm. And so what happens is, you know, I'll usually I'll sit for a day. I'll, you know, I'll write until I run out of ideas or just get disgusted by the lack of clarity in, in my own writing. And then I'll send it out to the challenge network, put it away for a few days and then come back to it once their feedback has come in. Mm. And then I have a bunch of new material to run with. I have a fresh perspective and it kind of iterates like that throughout. I don't know. I, I spent two years writing Think Again, but I would say the core drafting was probably three or four months in a routine like that. Think Again is all about willing to unprogram yourself, unlearn, and to look at every belief that you have and go, why do I feel this way? What was the process? And can I be better? Not saying it's wrong, but maybe I could improve that. And as someone that works in sports, man, it is it is a thought that I wish fans could take in. It's a thought that I really wish media personalities could take in. And you, you did a study uh, or you mentioned a study about Red Sox fans and Yankees fans and how when you asked a Red Sox fan, who would the Yankees have to play to root for them? Maybe the Taliban, maybe the Taliban. And, and as someone that grew up in a Philadelphia Eagles home, I remember those conversations about Dallas Cowboys fans. Now, son, if you bring home a woman and she's a Dallas Cowboys fan, I don't know if it's going to work out. These were real things said in my home with <laughs> conviction. And, um, but I know I, you're, you are a sports fan as well. And so you, I know that it must be interesting to real. What was it like to realize that about your own self and your own uh, stereotypes and bias? You know, it's, it's so strange. So I, I grew up in a Michigan family. Uh, my mom went to Michigan. My uncle is probably the world's biggest Wolverine fan. And yet he, you know, despite hosting tailgates, he has an entire van that's decked out in, in, you know, Michigan colors and logos. And his whole basement is like Michigan memorabilia. He married my aunt. She went to Ohio State. Like, what the hell is going on here? I don't know how that happened. But uh, I, I grew up hating the Buckeyes. Uh, I grew up, you know, pretty, pretty intensely disliking the Spartans. Mm. And only, only in the last few years have I started to wonder, like, how did I get programmed this way? And one of, one of the moments was I went back to Michigan for grad school and I was walking to, uh, to a Michigan-Ohio State game and yeah, everybody's wearing maize and blue. And this one fan of the Buckeyes walks by in, in red and gray and all of a sudden it looks like Moses parting the Red Sea. And the, all the Wolverine fans just moved to one or the other side of the street. So there's this lone Buckeye fan walking in the center of the street. And people start pointing and chanting, asshole, asshole. And it was like, it was like everybody had planned it in advance, but it, it was completely spontaneous coordination. And I thought it was funny at first. And then I thought about it more. And I was, I was just starting you know, my, uh, my doctorate in psychology. And I started thinking, well, where, what's going on here? Like, I don't know this person. Yeah, I think they have crappy taste in a sports team at university, but what, like, why do I have any feelings toward, toward this person? And yeah, eventually, years later, Tim Kundra and I decided to do these experiments to see if we could get Yankees and Red Sox fans to rethink their attitudes toward each other. Hmm. Uh, and I'm, we're still working on it, but I, I'm pleasantly surprised that it's possible. Yeah, I, what, what I took from it was, in your discussion of fanhood, that if you said the, the most effective way was think about the arbitrary nature 
of the of where you were born and how that impacts. And if you were born there and you were judged based on the team that you were rooting for, how would that make you feel? It was a combination of arbitrary and empathy almost. Yes. So let's play this out, Adam. Who do you think you'd root for if you grew up in Dallas? Yeah, I would root for the Cowboys. 100%. Say that again. I, I, I feel like all your listeners need to hear you say it. Yeah, but you need to understand this. I have picked the Cowboys to win many divisions. I feel like I've been reading Adam Grant stuff in years past where I've been I've been on your pulpit, one of the preachers and prosecutors, like about going, hey, guys, and Jerry Seinfeld, we're rooting for laundry. Like I've been thinking this way for a long time that most Eagles fans think I'm a, cow, a secret Cowboys fan anyway because I've been trying to argue <laughs> no. this for so long. All right, then I, I have to say fly, Eagles fly right now. Yes, yeah, yeah, get it out, get it out. Go green, go birds. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny, though, because I, I thought at first that the fans were going to have a hard time admitting that, you know, that they might possibly love a different team because mm. uh, these these allegiances are so deep-seated. And people people were pretty, they were pretty open about it. Uh, I think, you know, in, in some cases, it was, it was hilarious reading some of the responses that they wrote when we said, hey, you know, who, who do you think you'd root for if you, you know, if you grew up in your rival city? Uh, and, you know, sometimes they, they'd write like, well, I, you know, I, I guess I'd root for the Red Sox, but I'd be a bad person. <laughs> like, really? I, I don't think you would know anything different. Yeah. My, my only hole in this discussion, because it's something that I focus on a lot, is the people wearing the clothes. I see that fans, whenever there is an issue between a player and finance and contracts or switching teams, they, they can empathize immediately with another fan base losing the, the player, but they can never put their mindset into the player. And I find that there's a huge gap in humanity and empathy when it comes to the athletes that are playing. And I don't know if it's because fans look at an athlete and they can never imagine themselves with that set of physical traits, um, or if they look at the money and it's just greed that overtakes them. But that's the, the, the lack of understanding that I always struggle with is not fan to fan, but fan to player. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Like I've I've wondered so many times. Like, wait, you you love this player now you hate him. What's what's going on? Like, does it really matter what what team he's on? And it seems like I don't know. I mean, even just the the idea that like I I it never occurred to me to question whether it's okay for a team to trade a player. Can you imagine if your employer just one day said, ah, "We're shipping you off to Cleveland." <laughs> Crazy. Enjoy. You have yeah. no say in the matter. You have to work for this organization and live in this city. And yeah, obviously, okay. You could say, well, you know, they came in expecting that that was part of the job, and you know, it's, I guess it's <laughs> they're getting hazard pay for it, right? But that wasn't always like that. I, like mm. rewind a few decades when athletes didn't make that much, and they still got traded. Mm. Why? Why don't we rethink that? Why is it why is it the case that you have no say in what team you join? Mm. It's uh well rethinking is everything. And so uh I want I want to bring it back to your book Think Again. Um it talks about amazing things that I think people should implicate or excuse me, put into the workplace like constructive um conflict. You mentioned the Wright brothers there and how important it is. You mentioned it with the writing of your book to people around you that are going to disagree with you and are going to challenge you. Um, I had a moment this weekend where my fiance 
I, I know when she's going to go, can I be honest? It's going to hit me to my core. <laughs> and I love her for it. Like she got me this weekend. I had a, a hosting performance and she goes, can I be honest? I went, sure. And she goes, I didn't like this. I didn't like this. I didn't like this. I think you messed up here and blah, blah, blah. And I allowed some defensiveness to happen. And then I sat with it. And then we have like, it, it's so much, it, it's so interesting to me. And I'm curious if you have this in, in your marriage where when someone calls you out and you get past that initial defensiveness, the real love that can happen afterwards. And this is with a coworker appreciation or a marriage love. And I, how, how strong is it for you guys? Because you have to be challenging each other all the time. Yeah. Well, I have, I have a bunch of questions and reactions there, Adam. The first one is, have you ever said no? No, you can't be honest? Yes. Really? Yeah. And what happens then? Um, Oh, it comes out later somehow. Like it, I'll find out about it later. But it's more of I know that I'm not in the um, the emotional state to take it at that time. Yeah, that got the, it. that the lift was heavier than I let on, and that let me just let me process this, and then we'll let's sleep on it. We'll talk about it tomorrow. You know. Yep. Yeah, because it, it sounds like what she's really asking is, can I give you some feedback? And is now a good time? Right. Totally. Right. Of course. Of course, she can be honest. <laughs> the, the question is right 100%. now about this task. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of the things that, that Allison and I have found and by Allison and I, I mean me, because I keep, I keep forgetting this is, uh, I, I forget to tell her because, you know, she's the person I ask most often for feedback and the person I trust most that I value her feedback. Hmm. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll adopt one of her suggestions and then decide not to follow another. And I forget to tell her, you know what? Like, I, I don't follow all the feedback that everyone gives me. I seek lots of perspectives. I usually come to you first and last right. because your perspective is the most important. But sometimes the points that seem like quality to you are taste. And your taste doesn't always overlap perfectly with my audience. And you also mm. see things from a particular vantage point given, you know, given our relationship. Mm. And so I want to make sure that, you know, that I'm getting a representative view. And I think this is something we should all do more broadly when we we collect feedback, right? Is like, People, people are generally disappointed if you ask them for their opinion and then you just ignore it. Right? It's, totally. it's pretty helpful to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out to five or six people I really trust. I'm going to gather a range of perspectives and then I'm going to try to take what seem to be the most important and the most consistent suggestions. Mm. I, I go to executives so many times when I first get like for this TV job that I'm doing and I'm like, I need one of you to roast me. And I, and I need it to be honest and I'm not, and please don't think that I'm coming to you trying to make a good impression about how I know, like I need it because to me, it, we, we, me and David talk about this a lot with the movie whiplash. The worst thing you could say to somebody for growth is good job. Ugh. And, and, but yeah, it, you didn't even, you didn't even teach them anything about what was good so they can repeat it. Do, do people think that you enjoy getting broke down? Like, how do you explain, like, for people that aren't so welcoming to this, how do you explain your desire to get your work shredded? I, when I, I usually go to sports. So as you know, Adam, I was a diver in high school and college, uh, the springboard kind, not the, not the scuba, uh, mm. always, always above the water, uh, of course, at, least, of at least until you hit it. Uh, and I, the thing I loved most about diving was that I got constructive feedback on every single thing I did. Mm. Right. Like a dive, a dive is only two seconds, right? You, you jump off the board, you spin or twist, you enter the water and then your coach dissects the 80 or 90 things that you did and tries to focus on the three or four changes that are going to be most important. Right. And that would be, it's like rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. And 
it was it was the most it, it's probably the the clearest trajectory of growth I've ever had in anything uh, because you know I can't see what I'm doing and my coach can and I can go and make changes you know moment by moment that help me progress. And so I guess what I've, what I've tried, I've tried to explain that to people and say, look, this is what I love most about being a diver is mm. I could get better every single time I jumped in the air and I miss that, right? I don't, I don't have that in my work life. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't have the same judging criteria, right? Like we, we don't agree on what's, what's a four and what's a six and a half and what's an eight. Mm. Uh, we don't have degrees of difficulty, you know, attached to every single project we do. Uh, and there's, there's not a coach that everybody trusts and, yeah, I want to get closer to that. <laughs> so mm. can you, you know, can, can you go into that mode and try to be my coach and tell me everything you see that I could get better at? And most of the time people are like, no, 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 I thought it was pretty good. And then what I, I found two things really helpful to get them to be honest, uh, if they're not like your fiance. Yeah. Uh, the, fir the first one is asking for a score, saying, give me a zero to 10. Mm. Nobody ever says 10. And that, then that's a chance for me to say, look, you know, thanks. I, like, I appreciate that this was a, you know, a six or a seven and a half. I'm aiming for 10. What can I do to get closer? Yeah. And then they don't, they don't feel like they're hurting my feelings anymore. They, they realize, all right, they're helping me. And then the other thing that, that seems to really make a difference is to criticize myself out loud. To say, you know, let's just start. Can you tell me one thing I can do better? And if they say nothing, I'll say, well, I actually had six notes. Like, I, that story was way too long. Right, right. I should have let you jump in two minutes ago. What, what do you think? Mm. It what was the name of it in the book? I can't remember about the uh, asking questions as a way, whether it's like people that are argumentative about vaccine. What was that process? Called? Motivational interviewing. Motivation. I did not. It was one of those things where you read it and you go, that's the name of the thing that I've been doing. You know, and of course, like I would have to learn more about it, but I've always been someone that's like, I would rather ask questions than have a declarative statement. Um, and then I read your book, Think Again, and I go, oh, wow, this is something that is used in a lot of different fields to get people to see both sides, whether this is party lines in politics, whether this is something medical like vaccines, which we're experiencing right now as we're trying to get past this COVID uh, virus and the pandemic, and, and even sports, you know, and going, why do you hate it? Instead of saying, here are the five reasons you should not hate the Yankees. And I, it's, there's a lot of power in a question. There is. And, you know, again, that's, it's something that I guess I imprinted on as, as a fake athlete uh, in my diving days. I don't say that. No, no. I mean, di you know, diving is not a real sport like the ones that you cover. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's an Olympic sport that so. doesn't, it doesn't, it attract doesn't generate the ratings. So thus it's not a real sport. That's how I look it, at it. It's for me. I, I exist in a, the things that are popular because there's a lot of money and ecosystems attached to it. You know, if, if I don't even know who the best, what is it? Greg Luganis? Sure. If he was like the bigger, the biggest celebrity ever, he was Michael Jordan. We'd be watching it, but that's probably true. But I also think there's a, there's a talent question, right? I wonder how, how much better would the world's best divers be if diving was cool in the US like it is in China? Mm. Uh, like we'd, it would be a different level and I couldn't have been good, right? I was lucky to be born in the US where I didn't have to right, compete right. with billions of poten potential divers who were handpicked on their, you know, their athletic aptitude. But right. I, it's back to, back to your question on motivational interviewing and the power of questions. Uh, one, of, one of my biggest vices as a diver was I was afraid to try new dives. I would stand at the end of the board shaking. Like I have to, I have to go up on a three meter springboard. I have to do two flips, a twist, and then dive in head first. 
And odds are I'm going to crash and I'm going to hit the, the water at 20 or 30 miles an hour. Uh, I might have bruises for weeks. Uh, definitely going to get the wind knocked out of me, possible concussion. And the worst part is I'm going to get lost in the air and have no idea where I am. Mm. And so I would just stand there shaking <laughs> 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And wow. You know, it's obviously ruining practice for everyone and frustrating for anybody who's coaching me. And I had this incredible coach, Eric Best, who one day said, Adam, are you going to do this dive? I was like, right now? No. He's like, no, ever. <laughs> are, you, are you planning to do this dive? Yeah, of course I am. Like, this is a major goal of mine. It's, you know, key to making progress. I want to compete in a meet one day. And he's like, so what are you waiting for? And immediately like, flip the switch. And he could have he could have given me all the reasons why I should do the dive. And he st instead, he said, I'm not going to force you to change, right? I'm just going to help you find your own motivation to do it, which is to say, are you going to do it? Is this something that you want to do? And if I had said no, he would have said, okay, let's move on. Mm. I, I love how I could see the way that you talk and the way that you write that you mentioned in the book about being called Mr. Facts uh, and being a logic bully, that there were definitely times in your life where people would have a differing viewpoint and one that was very rooted and that was not malleable and that you would, it would probably frustrate you. How, what, how Still did does. you, how did you used to talk to people to, to enact change and create thought and, and how different is it from the way that you do it now? What were the big steps for you? I, I don't always practice what I teach. <laughs> so ju just yesterday I was in an argument and I got called a logic bully like, oh man, I'm doing it again. Because when, when I think somebody's wrong, I just feel like it's my moral responsibility to correct them. Hmm. And that generally does not go well. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the old way in general was, you know, I'd, I'd say, Adam, you're wrong. <laughs> Let me show you the data. Yes. And then I would just hammer you with, you know, four or five studies and a bunch of evidence to back up my case. And you would then either get defensive or go on the attack or just shut down and withdraw altogether. And when I remember to do it, when I realized that <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm flipping into this mode, what I try to do is first, I want to preface the conversation by saying, hey, I have a bad habit of going into prosecutor mode. Mm. Uh, I've been accused of being a logic bully and that's not who I want to be. Right? I want to have a thoughtful conversation and my hope is I can learn some things from talking to you. Mm. So if you catch me going into lawyer mode, call me out. And that, that makes and a that big difference. that just sets the tone right away. I mean, it, it, I hope it does. I've, I've, gotten, I've gotten some really interesting responses to it. Uh, in some cases, people will say things like, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I can be really stubborn and pigheaded. And you know, I hope we can learn something from each other today, which is a great way to, to reset. In other cases, you know, I'll, I'll get into the, the discussion and then the person will, will pause partway through and say, you're lawyering again. Hmm. Like, okay, good. I need to, I need to take a step back here and approach this conversation differently. Uh, it was very ironic to me that one, you popped up in a different book I'm reading. Then I, since March have last March have gotten very deep into sports cards. And I see that the reason you were called Mr. Facts was because of sports cards back in the day. Beckett. It's all Beckett. Beckett, the, the magazine, all of that. Uh, have you seen this boom recently that we're going through? Uh, and did it, did it interest you at all or, or have you not picked up cards in, in what is years? I, I just went and grabbed, uh, some boxes out of my closet last Man. weekend and, and found a lot of my old cards like Mark McGuire, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, I think I have, I got a signed Shaq card at some point that's oh, wow. uh, <laughs> still in, in one of the boxes and, 
I um I haven't gotten interested in it personally, uh, but I it it just brought back a flood of memories about how like, reading baseball statistics on mm. you know both in the newspaper and on the backs of cards like that's the reason I became a social scientist. It has to be. Like I was like, oh, we're doing the same thing, only with people in all kinds of jobs, not just in a sport. Uh, can we dive into that, the nostalgia? And then so it you really were able to trace back everything that you're doing because the way that the, a sports card almost combined the two worlds of the social science and your love for sports. I love that. Yeah, I, I mean, I obviously didn't know it at the time, but I remember, gosh, I, I, used, to, I used to count the days until the next Sports Illustrated for Kids would arrive oh, in yeah. my mailbox. You remember that? Yeah, SI faces in the crowd cards and all that. So good. And... My my mom sent me. Uh, this was, it's it's. I think I peaked in sports at this age. But there was some kind of contest in in Sports Illustrated for kids where before the baseball season started, you had to predict who was going to make the World Series and who was going to win. And my mom sends me this picture of me and two other kids who were, I guess, the only kids who predicted both the winner and the loser of the World Series before the season started. You made the magazine. I made the magazine once, and that was the end of my career as a sports analyst. You went out on top. You nailed it. That's the way. To I mean, do it. I, I'm, I'm definitely I'm pulling a George Costanza, right? Like I'm out. Yeah. No, you <laughs> got out the perfect time. Um, but it was, you know, it's funny because I don't even remember submitting my predictions. I remember being wrong the previous three years in my mm. forecast and running these little fantasy leagues with my friends where we had to keep score by hand. And it was such good early training in in what I do now, which is observing human behavior, trying to make predictions, and then also designing experiments to try to test my predictions, which we never got to do in sports because couldn't get, we couldn't get a hold of any of the players. Right. <laughs> I, watch, I, I remember watching football games and thinking, okay, I just I grew up a Lions fan. And I, wait, you're, spo- you're supposed to express a lot of sympathy right now. No, I think you're fine. You're, you have a coach <laughs> that's going to be biting kneecaps. You, you got to experience Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson. Uh, I don't... I did. Come on, Adam. I'm not doing that. You're, uh, that is right, not fine. part of your identity. That is just happenstance for where you were born. So continue right. with your arbitrary information. You no, just, just uh, you just <laughs> hoisted me with my own petard. I love it. Uh, I yeah. I guess I, I like. I remember watching. I, I remember watching Barry Sanders, like you know, gain 32 yards with a loss of nine. Right? Yes, <laughs> All the dancing yeah. he did in the backfield, and. I'm like, is there like, what if, what if we change the scoring here so that the total number of steps you took uh, actually counted for yards? Like what, what kind of records would he set? But then, you know, in, on a serious note, it's like, okay, what, what if we just ran the experiment of sticking with one quarterback for a month right? instead of having, you know, a rotation of what was it like Rodney Pete and Eric Kramer. And yes, it's just, I'm like, I, I none of them are good. But what if we just built some consistency in mm. or what, like, what if Barry agreed to ditch Wayne Fonts for one year as coach mm. and we just ran the experiment, let anybody else coach what would happen? And we could never run those experiments. And it drove me crazy. The, 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 what was funny as I was reading your book too, is I kept thinking about this world that I had gone into of sports cards and they're sports fans and they're very intelligent sports fans because they understand the, the Q rating of all the players and where they rank in history and their knowledge is so proficient, but because it's also an emerging asset class, there's a lot of preaching 
and prosecuting going on from other asset classes. And so right now we're entering this world where non-fungible tokens and cryptocurrency is really big. And I'm noticing this huge divide between these classic collectors that love holding a physical, tangible object and this new emerging metaverse where people are like, no, it's all digital. All of this physical stuff does not matter. And so as I read your book and I think about how it be, these opinions become people's identity, we are now entering a world, in my opinion, where we have one physical matters and then I have another group that's saying the physical world doesn't matter. And in terms of like opinions that define our identity, this one feels like it's going to be a really tough one to, to traverse. This is fascinating. So, okay, so let's let's dig into this a little bit. First of all, the I think the the preacher, prosecutor, politician, scientist framework is is really relevant here. So you've you've got some sports fans who are basically preaching, look, you will never replace a card. Yes. The physical object, right? It's it's nostalgic, it's a memento, it's you know, it can't be copied or cloned. It's art. I could hold it, I could put it, it brings back, yeah, all that. Exactly. And then you also have prosecutors coming in and saying, You are wrong. <laughs> let me let me make my closing argument here and I will win my case. And then over time, as as people preach or prosecute, they start to think like politicians and they belong to a certain tribe and they're only trying to get the approval of their audience and they're doing all this lobbying to bring people into their tribe. And none of those groups are rethinking any of what they believe. Any of it. And what, what, I, what I always want to encourage people to do is just say, think a little bit more like a scientist. <laughs> you don't have to go get a microscope or a telescope, right? All you need to do is say, you know what? I'm not going to let my ideas become my ideologies. And I'm going to listen to opinions that make me think hard, not just the ones that make me feel good. And maybe I'll even surround myself with people who challenge my thought process, not just the ones who agree with my conclusions. Um, one of the things that might be interesting, we so you, you know from the book that one of the groups that I think excels at thinking like scientists is super forecasters, mm. right? People, people who compete in these tournaments to predict the future, uh, like who's going to win the, world, the next World Cup, for example. Uh, or, you know, when, when, is, uh, when is each sport finally going to have a female head coach, uh, gotcha. you know, and, and so on. Yeah. And one of the things that most people do when they make those kinds of predictions is they just say, all right, let me imagine the future state of the world. And then, you know, I'll, I'll basically come up with a, a set of specific predictions that map onto that. What the world's best forecasters do differently is they imagine seven or eight possible states of the world. And then they make their predictions based on how many of those their theory could hold in. Mm. And so if we take sports cards as, as a specific example here, we could say, okay, uh, one analogy is they're going to be like a cryptocurrency and you know the physical object is going to become irrelevant. Another version of the world is their art, like you said. And you know, paintings have only become more valuable over time, right? right? Uh, and so let's, let's map out what both of those worlds look like. And then let's come up with three or four more possible comparisons. And then we're going to make our bets based on what strategies might work regardless of which world ends up existing. This is where I think the dilemma comes in. I think people appreciate process, but I think just like you on the diving board, there is the overwhelming fear to make that bet. And I think, I think if we were to dive into the psychology of gambling, I think a lot of people don't gamble because they're afraid to pick a side. And what I see with the way media works and how uh, Instagram and, and small headlines, people are willing to adopt other people's ideas 
One, because it's the easiest thing to do. And two, because I think they're afraid. So when, when it comes to like forecasting the future, did you, did you ever have fear in making bets or is it your mindset as a scientist? Let me make this decision quicker because then if I find out I'm wrong, I can adapt to it sooner. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the second bucket as long as the stakes are low. <laughs> you, you raise the stakes and all of a sudden I don't want to play anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, I want to I be right. I don't want to bet on probabilities, uh, which is obviously not something that is going to be conducive to any kind of gambling. But I think that one of the things I've learned over time is that it's helpful to think about all kinds of risks, just like you would a stock portfolio, right? So people tend to make these binary choices. You know, am I a gambler or am I not a gambler? Mm. Well, no, you, you have lots of different domains of your life and you can choose how much you want to gamble in each of them, right? Some people are physical risk takers. Other people are financial risk takers. Other people are, are social or emotional risk takers. And if you balance that out like a portfolio and say, okay, you know what? I'm playing it. You know, I've, I've quarantined for a year. I haven't gone anywhere for COVID. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've basically, that's the, the health equivalent of investing in some really boring, predictable mutual funds. That gives me the freedom and flexibility to take a, you know, a couple of other kinds of risks and maybe gamble a little bit. Uh, I think that's, that's probably a healthier way to look at it. Because if, if you take no risks in life, that's actually a risky strategy. Mm. You're sitting there and you're, you're having no growth. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, recommend... kind of... Sorry, no, please. no, no, go ahead. No, you have to go. You're the guest. <laughs> no, I was, I was just going to say, it's a little bit like being a sports coach who calls the safest play on every single decision. Uh, and that, that would be a terrible strategy. I implore you to go check out Think Again uh, by Adam Grant. Um, the audiobook is very funny. Uh, he has moments, you do, Adam, where you sound like a South Park character, which I really enjoy, where you're like, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm like, oh, okay, Adam, a little bit of character range there. That was good. Um, but the part with the, the debate uh, between, uh, is it Harash? Harish. Harish. Uh, and I don't want to give it away is, uh, is a great moment. Cause as I watch sports television, I see debaters, you talk about negotiation as a dance, uh, that it's not about attack all the time that you really want to give up stuff. And I think it's, it's great for people that are going in for a work negotiation. I think it's great for people that are having conversations about politics with their family, if it makes them uncomfortable. Uh, I think it's a good conversation. It's a good thing to remember for life is that dance. Um, and it's, it's something that I, I think about a lot these days is the dance. Have you, how are, how are your dancing skills uh, at this point? Terrible. I mean, in the literal sense, my wife signed us up for dancing lessons before <laughs> our wedding and she made us quit after the second one. Stop. I have no rhythm. But were you just doing a side to side step thing or was it yeah, you were trying yeah, to do a whole can't waltz? Even, can't even handle that. No, even Adam. the basics. I'm hopeless. I know. So I, for me, dance is only a metaphor. It's, it's saying, you know what? <laughs> you have to let the other person lead sometimes. You have to actually look for some common ground if you ever want to get in sync. Mm, and then your negotiation dance skills at this point, would you put them up against a better. lot of... Yeah? <laughs> better. Would, Not perfect. What, what, better. How would you say that you could uh, classify yourself as a master negotiator at this point, or do you think that no. you're still learning? No, I mean, I, first of all, I think we're all still learning. Secondly, I think the people who call themselves masters uh, are usually overconfident, and that's when you fail to know what you don't know. 
I think little, that little I, Kruger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, that's stunning Kruger at its worst. So I, I would say I have a lot of negotiation knowledge and my skill varies depending on how much I care about the outcome. My worst negotiations are the ones where I'm really invested in a particular result. Mm. And where I've been most effective is where I have a strong, what's called a BATNA negotiation language, right? Which is a best alternative to negotiated agreement where okay. I say, you know what? I, I don't need this. I'm perfectly happy to walk away because uh, that stops me from <laughs> falling into this trap that's known as agreement bias, where I just want to say yes to get a deal done. My generation, the greatest example of the negotiation dance where you lead with your faults and you leave them no opportunities, I immediately thought of 8 Mile. And I don't know if you had seen it, uh, but at the last scene when B-Rab, a.k.a. Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem, uh, pretty much says, I am white. I am a bum. I do live in a trailer with my mom. What else are you going to say about me? As I was listening to your book, I was like, this is 8 Mile. This is exactly yeah. what it is. I, you know what? I hadn't seen the parallel, but there, there is. it's amazing how disarming it is to call out your own weaknesses and flaws before other people can pounce on them. Right. And especially if, if you own them, you're showing you're not you're not showing insecurity. You're showing confident humility, which is I'm secure enough in my own ego to talk about my weaknesses, which means I must have some real strengths. Mm. Uh, I have one last selfish question for you, because I and I think a lot of my listeners uh, are having a hard time doing deep work. And so the fact that you did come up in that book, what was your process to get over the constant notification world that we live in, uh, how were you able to close it off and to really, and I'm sure it wasn't easy in the beginning, how did you begin going, I could be with myself for a few hours and really work on something that matters to me and create books and writings? Well, I think a lot of people see it as a time management problem. I don't. I think it's an attention management problem. Right. The problem is that our attention is too easily captured by all these shiny objects. And the best antidote I know of to divided attention is commitment. Right? When, when you're pursuing an important goal, when you're locked into a value or you know, a target, then you, you basically develop a healthy form of tunnel vision, sometimes healthy form of tunnel vision. right? Sure. And you, you, you don't want to let any distractions in. And so the, you know, I think a lot of people will say, well, you need a to-do list and then you need to focus on the to-do list. What I've found is more helpful is having a to-don't list. I, I literally have a list of things I will not do while I'm working because they're going to distract me and interfere with my productivity. Mm -hmm. I don't answer the phone unless it's an emergency or a scheduled call, right? So you, you can't just randomly decide to call me and then barge into my day. I'm like, sorry, I, I have something on my calendar. It's called writing. Yeah. Like, get in line. Uh, and that I think is, is hugely helpful. I also have simple to don'ts. I don't, uh, I don't check social media. Uh, so I only log into post, no scrolling while I'm working. Uh, I don't turn on the TV unless I already know what I want to watch, which means I'm not going to get caught channel surfing. Uh, and I don't play words with friends or online Scrabble when I'm trying to get things done. And it's amazing. Just that short list of things that I won't do uh, almost rules out every distraction that might prevent me from working. Because my first thought is then the weakness enters and you go, maybe, maybe this text is important. Maybe I need to respond to this email, but yours is. And, and now that you've felt results out of it, now you've been rewarded so many times, it's a self-fulfilling thing. 
it's yeah, it's very self-reinforcing at this point where I have the opposite problem. <laughs> I have to let distractions in to make sure that I, I get access to creative ideas and I'm not, you know, stuck on a path that doesn't make sense. But I think, you know, just just the starting point of coming up with a to, a to don't list is a is a helpful step. And then I guess the one other thing I would say on this is I, I did an episode last year of work life on uh, on the real reason you procrastinate. And a lot of people blame it on laziness. But if you look at what you do while you're procrastinating, a lot of those things require real effort. <laughs> like if you ever if you ever cleaned up your room sure. instead of working, like that that's not that's not something a lazy person would do. And it, it turns out that we we procrastinate not because we're avoiding work, but because we're avoiding negative emotions that we associate with certain tasks. So I procrastinate when I think something's boring and I put it off because I I'm kind of I'm energized by interest and curiosity. Uh, other people might procrastinate because the problem is hard or they're anxious about not being able to do it well, or they're afraid they're going to find out they're incompetent at this task. Mm. And I think if you pay a little more attention to which negative emotions are causing you to put a task off, it's easier than to start managing them. Awesome. Adam, thank you for your time. The book again is Think Again. Uh, I loved Originals. That was one that I was quoting on this podcast for a very long time. And I appreciate you having me on Work Life for the Sean McVay episode. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on and sharing all this. Thank you for having me. I'm a fan. I've, uh, I've enjoyed listening and learning. And uh, I think when I was a kid, I, I sort of wanted to be you when I grew up and I didn't even realize that was a job. I will find a way to create a lane for you <laughs> in the television. So I'm doing the NBA on TNT right now. I think it would be really, I think this would be really funny. Imagine if Shaq was like, I don't like the way that people play today. It's, it's wrong. They need to go back. And then out of nowhere, Adam Grant pops up and goes, why do you feel that way? I just think that would be so like, it would just turn TV on its head because everybody's making these definitive statements. And then you just pop out of nowhere and you're like, I would even want you to like come out from the set and be like, are you sure? Have you researched that? I think it'd be so funny. I, I think that would be a blast. Although I, I, I'd be so tempted to say, all right, Shaq, just <laughs> give me, give me one month. I want to see if I could teach you to shoot a free throw, a free throw. If I could teach you to make a free throw, I just want to, I want to get you to 70%. That's my target. I don't want you to, because I knocked him out. We played knockout last week and I knocked him out and it was like a crowning achievement for my life. Uh, so please I mean, really don't though, make him better. You're comparing yourself to Shaq as a shooter. Yeah, yeah that's fine. I feel great <laughs> about that. He was a professional athlete and I nailed it. It was great. No, I, I really, I really want to see if it could be done because then I think he might change his mind. He doesn't like the way the game is being played because he wouldn't be as good in this version of the mm. game. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he, he can you imagine Shaq Curry. pulling up for a three? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I I personally don't think I would like it as much because in my in my identity, I like Shaq as this bruising monster force, and to think of him going out and shooting threes, I like my Shaq physical, so I would be biased. So that's so interesting. I have the opposite bias. Like I was the you know the kid who started high school at four foot nine, and the yeah. only thing I could do was shoot a three or a free throw. So I, I love this version of the game. It serves me well. I agree. That's the reason why Steph Curry is going to be, you know beloved in every country for the next 50, 60 years, because so many kids go, I can do that if I yes. really practiced a lot. And that matters. Yeah. Like I could be the next Muggsy Bogues, but better. No doubt. Uh, Adam, thanks again, man. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. This is fun.